This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Johnston, the host of New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. And today I have Dr. Tom Guerin with me. Welcome to the show, Dr. Guerin. I'm happy to be here. Pronounce it Guerin, okay? <laughs> yes, my apologies. Uh, Dr. No problem. Guerin. Dr. Guerin is a Rudy Professor of Sociology and Adjunct Professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Indiana University. He earned his PhD from Columbia University in 1979 and has been at, been at Indiana University ever since. He also has served as a visiting professor at Cornell University, Nankai University in Tianjin, China, 20 University in Holland, and he spent a year at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study. Dr. Guerin does uh, research on the cultural authority of science and on the significance of place for human behavior and social change. He regularly teaches introductory sociology and social theory. His book, Cultural Boundaries of Science, Credibility on the Line, uh, published by University of Chicago Press in 1999, won the Robert K. Merton Book Award from the Section on Science, Knowledge, and Technology of the American Sociological Association. The prize is actually named after his mentor uh, at Columbia University. He also is the author of True Spots, Emphasizing Legitimate Belief, and today we'll be discussing his book, True Spots, How Places Make People Believe. Again, thank you for joining us today, and uh, is there anything in addition to uh, your biography that I missed? No, uh, Michael, I think that's quite complete and flattering, and I thank you for it. All right. So to start off with, what led you to, to this book, True Spots, How Places Make People Believe? Yeah, well, you mentioned that, that most of my previous research is in the sociology of science, or STS, Science and Technology Studies. And um, this project on True Spots comes out of an earlier batch of work on the design of laboratories. Um, that particular interest goes back to that visiting year when I was in Ithaca at Cornell, and I happened to uh, be walking home from my office, passed by what apparently was a big celebration for the opening of a, of a new building at Cornell uh, for biotechnology. And I walked in and I started talking to people. I'm a sociologist and kind of nosy. And I fell in with a guy who was the head of the design team, a biochemist, who told me that this building was the absolutely the most significant thing that he had ever done in science. That gave me pause. I went home and looked him up. He was a National Academy member, rafts of publications and grants. But this building obviously was important because he felt it defined the future of a new field, biotechnology, and would enable researchers to grow that new field. So I, I began to think, gee, the laboratory itself, this place, this building, the labs, the hallways, the storage, everything about it must be important for science. And that was actually the start. I went, you mentioned, Michael, the uh, year that I spent at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Uh, across the hall was the anthropologist Clifford Gertz. And one day I happened to notice a book leaning against the wall outside of his office. The delivery person had dropped it off from the Princeton Library. I picked it up and it was a book by Ed Casey called The Fate of Place and or Getting Back into Place. One or the other. I can't remember now. Those are two books by Ed Casey. I started reading it and I realized that what I was really interested in was not just the design of a laboratory, but places in general that make people believe. And 
Uh, Casey's book, Talking with Gertz, lots of other influences, um, compelled me to expand the study far beyond science. So that's kind of a shaggy dog story of how I got here. Um, I think the important thing is what I did first, because I had no idea what to study um, if, if, uh, if it wasn't a scientific laboratory. And for whatever reason, I visited my sister up in Boston, and we went to Walden Pond. It was a very cold winter day. Walked around, and I realized that this place for Thoreau kind of functioned as a laboratory, but in very, very different ways. I mean, it was a place um, from which he writes claims, metaphysical, philosophical, whatever, that he wants us to take as true, that he wants us to believe, and that the place Walden Pond, he concocts in the text in such a way to make us believe. I was off and running, Michael. That was just the start. Um, and and from there, it went in lots of different directions, okay? Excellent. And uh, the interesting piece is that uh, uh, truth is, is almost, I, I think, akin to uh, this term we also use in sociology, myth. It's not whether it's true or not true, but rather it's a storyline, and, and that all uh, carries on to future behavior and future interactions that we have with those uh, spaces and places. Yeah, um, I, uh, yes, I'm fairly agnostic, properly so for a sociologist, about what truth might be for different groups of people. But the, the fundamental argument of the book is simply this, that places make people believe. Um, and that right there is, a, is something that might give many sociologists pause. Uh, most people don't think of places as, as doing anything, Okay. That's fundamental for me that they do. They accomplish a lot. They have a kind of force. Uh, they have a kind of agency. And when I talk about places doing something, making people believe, I'm talking about place. Huh, this is kind of funny. I thought it would be easy to find somebody who had defined place, right? I mean, here I'm making an argument that places matter uh, epistemologically. They matter for what people take as truth whether that truth is scientific or legal, political, identity claims, history, future, all of those different kinds of claims that places make people believe. So I went to the literature. I looked in social. I looked in geography, anthropology. I got really very little help in defining place. So I decided to define it myself. Um, it's got three features. Very simple. Um, one, a place has a location. It's it's a spot somewhere in the universe. You can you can give it coordinates on GPS. It's there. Secondly, places have this materiality. There is natural stuff like Walden Pond or built stuff like a laboratory, but there's there's physical material stuff, natural or architectural. And third, places defined by the stories that we tell about it, the narratives about that particular location, those materialities, that that they get encrusted with um, stories that give meaning and value to that particular place. So if you wrap all those three things together, you've got a place like Walden Pond or a laboratory or any of the other places that I looked at in the book. Um, and then the, the challenge became how those places with those three sort of defining features get people to accept claims or beliefs or understandings um, somehow connected to that place. What is it about the place that makes people accept those as true? That's the premise of the book. And your question about truth, um, the, the actual uh, truth spots, the, the places that I picked for the eight chapters. Um, I could have written a whole lot more, but I really wanted to keep this a short book, and it is a fairly short book, a lot shorter than my other book. Um, I I just limited myself to eight places, um, and those eight places were picked because 
it seemed to me that they were working with a very different kind of truth, each one. As I said, scientific um, claims about the future or the past, identity claims, the different sorts of places work differently to convince people, persuade people, to make people believe in the truth of what was associated with those places, but they did so in different ways, okay? And I, uh, one of the things that I noticed as reading them, they, while they each had uh, distinctly different characteristics, they all came together as, uh, as, as one common design in, in how truth is created. Uh, but this truth and, and these locations – does truth transform over time and, and, and place? Does it, uh, uh, particularly over time, we know it does over place, we just mentioned that, but over time, do mm-hmm. those same tra- truths transform based on the narrative people get, uh, people give them? Uh, if I may, I, I think I'd like to turn that question around a little bit and, and keep closer to the argument of the book, which is, how do these places make us believe certain things about the past? That's the historical side. And how do they make us believe certain things about the future? So, yes, you're absolutely right. The truth is changing all the time uh, for different people at different times. But these places, in a sense, stabilize a particular version of the truth, a certain credible set of claims, whether historical or future. Um, There's a really good example right off the bat uh, from uh, the first chapter in the book. That first chapter uh, takes us to Delphi. Uh, in the United States, most people pronounce it Delphi, but I'm, I'm kind of hung up. The Greeks themselves call it Delphi. The Brits call it Delphi. So I'm going to call it Delphi, okay? But it's Delphi for a lot of people in this country. Anyway, um, the the oracle way back in, in several centuries B.C., Uh, located in a remote corner of Greece. Um, This was a place that at leaders of the city-states went for the oracle. They went for a a prognostication about uh, whether or not they should go into battle, whether or not they should make alliances, whether or not they should replace their leaders in the city-states. They they marched, and it was quite an arduous trip back then, out – into the mountainside, uh, Mount Parnassus in particular, uh, and consulted with the oracle, who was uh, a woman uh, known as the Pythias, who was a priestess. And she uh, uh, would sit on a tripod and the vapors would come up from the ground and and she would give a rather enigmatic uh, hunch as to what would happen if these city-states chose a certain course of action. Now, her her prophecies were always surrounded by doubt. The city-state leaders would have to go talk about it and so forth. But what was interesting to me is why for literally hundreds of years, we're talking about three or 400 years, Greek leaders, what eventually became the Greek leaders, leaders of city-states like Athens and Sparta, Sparta, Corinth, and so forth, actually accepted as true what this priestess said. I mean, that's kind of an odd question. But, I mean, they went there expecting the truth. But what was it about the place now of Delphi that convinced them? And I think it has a couple of features. One... um, this is this is again kind of uh, old hat for people that come through the sociology of science or STS, but it's this idea that distance uh, lends a kind of objectivity to the claims that the priestess made about the future. All right, so she might predict that if this particular city-state goes into battle. Uh, something horrible was going to happen. Who knows what that horrible thing might be? Um, Why would they believe it? Well, uh, I mentioned that Delphi was literally far out. I mean, it was far away from any of the city-states and therefore was not beholden to any one of them. It was in a place so remote that it supported itself only on its ability to give the truth. Um, and it was perceived as objective. It had no ulterior motive 
all the people of Delphi needed, including the priestess and the priests who attended her, um, all they needed was the resources, which they got from the visiting city-states who would bring food and all kinds of other uh, resources and drop them off in exchange for an objective accounting of the future. Um, that's, that's important because uh, location is one of those features of a place, right? And the location away from any of the political uh, squabbles in the city-states um, meant that the, the priestess was not under the thumb of anybody. She could render an objective, or so they believed, okay? There was one other aspect about Delphi that, that as a place now, that convinced the visitors, uh, the supplicants who came for the truth about the future, something else that convinced them. Um, fairly early on, uh, the oracle was no longer just a priestess sitting on a tripod, eventually there became um, a, a path going up the mountainside to the Temple of Apollo, where the priestess sat. Um, that path up the mountainside was um, built out by each of the city-states who had received a, a, a useful prophecy. They, they were called treasuries, they were small little temples. You can see one that's reconstructed today. The ruins of the rest are all around. These treasuries were built by Athens and Corinth and Sparta to thank the priestess as a testament for her wisdom in guiding them to successful action at war or alliances or whatever. And so if you come back, if you go to um, Delphi, uh, as, as a, again, one of these Greek city-states, um, and you see these treasuries, what are you to think? Well, obviously, they built these, they were expensive, they were lavish, they had jewels and so forth, as well as, as other kinds of resources. And that was a signal that previous people who had gone to Delphi got the truth. They wouldn't build a testament to something that didn't work or a bunch of lies. They built the testament to the truth. So the answer to my question, how was it that the place Delphi came to be the source of truthful accounts of the future for these archaic Greeks? Was its location? Distance creates objectivity. And these material sort of um, testaments to the prophecy actually working and helping. So if I can continue with that, Michael, just for one second. People go there today as tourists, as I did. I've been to Delphi twice. In fact, I've been to every single truth spot I wrote about except for Lapland, uh, which we could talk about perhaps. I never have been to Lapland, even though it figures in the story of Linnaeus. But anyway, I've been to, to Delphi, the Oracle, twice as a tourist and as a sociologist. and I. I was presented with a different problem. Originally, back in the archaic period, the Greek city-states came to Delphi looking for a, a truthful account of the future. Well, what do tourists go there today to find? They're looking for a truthful account of the past, right? What really happened back then? The place, quite frankly, is... I don't think I'm being disrespectful, but the place is manufactured to to convince tourists who pay good money to go there um, that a certain story about the past, the story basically that I just told you about the, the prophecy and the oracle and all the rest, that that in fact was true and that it happened right on site. So if you go to Delphi now, you've got an interesting juxtaposition. Most of the place is a ruin. I mean, there have been earthquakes and it's been looted repeatedly. Uh, uh, and But the archaeologists who did the work to rediscover Delphi as the oracle have reconstructed bits and pieces of it. So what once was the Temple of Apollo uh, is now kind of a flat space with just a few columns. They had to rebuild those columns, but they didn't rebuild the whole thing. I mean, they didn't want to make it Disney World or anything like that, just to give you a hint of the grandeur. So sort of partially reconstructed ruins. 
the treasury, you remember I talked about these, the Athenian treasury has been rebuilt almost completely. It's the only building actually on the mountainside on the oracular site that's been rebuilt to that extent. And it's um, it's magnificent. So you've got the ruins and the partial reconstructions. And then a little bit down the hill before you start up the sacred way is a museum. It's modern. It's exactly what you'd expect from a museum. It's full of displays, which touch screens and reconstitute physical maps of the place, the way it used to look, um, and artifacts that are too delicate to uh, leave outside that they found in the archaeological expeditions and so forth through the years. Um, everyone has, as museums go, um, a, a little narrative, a caption attached to the artifact telling you exactly what it is. And, you know, I spent most of my time watching other people look at the artifacts and the displays in the museum and as they walk through the ruins. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it that makes them believe? Well, they have no real reason to doubt. Let's be frank about it. But my goodness, this place is built to persuade. The place itself the museum, the semi-reconstructed ruins are put together so that when a tourist goes back to Athens or wherever they came from on a tour bus, probably they're thinking, wow, I just saw history that really was. It happened right there. Those crazy Greeks back then came up and listened to this woman who told them what their future was, and they believed it. And that's the first chapter. We're off and running. And uh, the, does the manufacturing of these truths have any impact on the quality of truth that is being produced? Did you notice anything about anything about that? Um, can I switch to another chapter for that point? That is fine. It's a it's a great question. Um, there's a chapter. It turns out to be the fourth chapter that um, goes into a um, an outdoor historical museum or village built by Henry Ford, of all people, in the late 20s and very early 1930s. It still exists. It's called Greenfield Village. I think it's been rebranded as the American Museum of Invention and Technology or something like that. But um, this is th this place um, is totally bizarre as a truth spot. I mean, uh, what Ford wanted to do is he wanted um, to convince us, literally in the depths of the Depression, so it opened not long after the, the crash of 1929, um, Ford wanted to convince the American people and people who visited Greenfield Village, it's, it's in Dearborn, which is Ford headquarters right outside of Detroit. Um, he wanted to convince visitors that capitalism was okay, it was going to be fine despite the Depression, and that entrepreneurs, industrial entrepreneurs and capitalists like himself, were going to lead the country back to prosperity and peace and all of the rest. And he really wanted to, uh, in a sense, give a particular narrative to um, industrial capitalism. Let the entrepreneurs go. They'll make discoveries. They'll develop new products and new gizmos that'll make for a better world. And everything eventually will be fine. We'll get through the depression. So uh, that's that's the story. And ideologically, you can appreciate that Henry Ford would, of course, want to tell that story because it puts him as perhaps the paramount entrepreneurial capitalist at the center of success. Right. But what does he do? Well, he builds a place. This is a guy who is known for saying history is bunk. Well, he didn't really mean that. He meant history as it's taught in the schools now is bunk. He was going to give a better way of telling history by putting people in a place in this outdoor museum where they could see history the way he wanted it to be seen. So here's what I did. Now it gets really funky. He says, well, We've got the Wright brothers down there in Dayton with their bicycle shop where they were tinkering around with what would become uh, the first airplane, right? Flight. I'm going to, says Henry Ford, I'm going to move the bicycle shop from Dayton 
to my little village here in Dearborn, Greenfield Village. And then he says, what about Edison out there in Menlo Park, New Jersey, inventing the electric light bulb and a bunch of other stuff? So what does Ford do? He goes and buys the entire Menlo factory and moves it to Greenfield Village. He does this over and over again with all of Luther Burbank, Harvey Firestone, all of the titans of industrial capitalism. He moves their their kind of origin places to Greenfield Village and reassembles them around a kind of New England green as if it's a, a little small town to do what? Well, if you're going there, it's impossible to come away without the conclusion that these men, and they were all men, let's face it, um, uh, were responsible for building this country, and the such people going forward will be responsible again for bringing it out of the depths of the Depression. There's a line in the book, I quote a, uh, a woman who, uh, a visitor to Greenfield Village, who uh, told uh, a researcher who had done some some um, work on Greenfield Village, told this researcher, um, my goodness, the visitor said, I had no idea that Ford and Edison and the Wright brothers all lived together on the same street. Well, of course they didn't. It was a complete fiction. And the point of this chapter is to get to your question now, a place like Greenfield Village, is a complete artifice. But that that artifice is a very strategically designed kind of place designed to create authenticity. And Ford did it um, perfectly. I mean, it uh, he was painstaking in making sure that there was nothing fishy about any of the stuff that he brought. He reassembled the Edison factory just the way it was, including the position of the chair when Edison did his experiments on on uh, the electric light bulb, what would become the electric light bulb. And so that chapter, um, it's, it's a very different kind of place than Walden Pond. It's not natural. It's not wild. It's not given. Um, it's very different from Delphi then and now. It's it's a contrivance, and the the ability of this place that Ford made um, to persuade people of his preferred narrative about history does not suffer because it's a contrivance. In fact, it's the artificiality that achieves the authenticity of the place, if that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yes, it does. And that is a good transition into... Uh, technology and how technology uh, may help uh, further manifest these truths, and uh, well, such as the internet, as one of the examples that I provided in my sample list of questions. Mm. How will the internet, artificial intelligence, how will that, um, how will that fit into this uh, concept of truth spots and the experience <laughs> that people have with truth spots into the future? Yeah, that that's a. That's a question I get a lot, Michael. Um, and when I started working on this project, everybody wanted to know whether or not a website uh, could be a truth spot, a blog could be a truth spot. Um, and, you know, I, I thought long and hard about it. If I really believed that pseudo spaces on the Internet could function as a truth spot, I wouldn't have written this book. OK, the the book begins with two premises uh, really adamantly argued. That is, I think they're right. The first one is that um, I reject the idea of a post-truth society, reject that. I also reject the idea that we have moved into an era of post-place 
society. In other words, I think there's a lot of things passing as truth. Uh, and the fact that we have fake truths and all of that doesn't mean that people long for the truth. We, in a kind of Foucauldian way, continue our desire for the truth, even if it gets harder and harder to find. But we're still looking for it. So the idea somehow that the very idea of truth has been eclipsed, that we're in a post-truth moment, is nonsense. I think the question is, how do we decide both individually and collectively what we believe as true in various domains like science and law and politics, identity and the rest? But it's that post-place um, um, commitment that I have or, or rejection of post-place, I guess, um, that gets to your question specifically. The argument of the book is that these actual places in the world, a spot on the globe somewhere or in, in the heavens, I don't know, but a spot on the globe, a place on earth with the natural and material stuff that you would find there and the stories that we tell about that particular spot that give it meaning and value, that matters despite the internet, despite digital everything, despite virtual, you name it, um, and I don't think that's going away. So I, I guess I'd push back a little bit. Um, it's possible that sites on the web can become legitimating of certain kinds of belief. Certainly people that post blogs intending to convince other people of their ideology must believe that themselves. They keep trying. My book is not going to take a position on that. The book instead says, Whatever goes on on the web, in the blogs, in the ether, um, does not supplant or replace the significance of actual geographic and physical places. And the book is about the latter. Um, I'm going to say I don't know about the future of such places. I do, in the book, sort of dance around the question by saying, you know, um, especially in this area era of post supposed post-truth, a lot of people when presented with claims online need to ratify or verify them somehow. And one of the ways that that ratification or verification takes place, huh, I just used the word, didn't I? One of the ways that ratification takes place is by going to a place. It's a kind of ground truthing. So for me, Michael, the 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 web constitutes a vast array of claims about truth, some of which get ratified um, through their reconnection back to a physical spot. There, there's one example from the book that that I'd like to talk about. Um, that's a, a chapter that has a really odd title. It's called Obama's Three Birthplaces. And I got to tell you, it has nothing to do with Obama's birthplaces, that his birthplace has nothing to do with the birther movement. Obama's three birthplaces is a reference to his uh, second inaugural address in which he identifies by name three birthplaces of very important identity-based collective movements. The first, historically, is Seneca Falls, birth of the feminist movement, supposedly. The second is Selma for the African-American civil rights movement. And the third being the Stonewall uh, Inn in Greenwich Village, New York, um, one of the places that serves as a kind of foundation for the gay rights movement. Now, um, claims to identity, uh, whether uh, it's a feminist claim, uh, a, a, a black uh, Americans claim to identity and certain rights on the basis of race, uh, a gay, lesbian, and so forth uh, claim to certain rights. Those, uh, the, the web is just incredibly full with such things. So what do, what do these three places that Obama called out specifically uh, in his inaugural address? And why did he single those out? Well, they they formed kind of a shorthand for um, 
um, President Obama. They were they were a way of referencing some. Uh, they were a way of referencing the reality of the identity claims of these three groups: women, African Americans, gays and lesbians, LGBT groups, and. All he needed to do was collect the identity, connect, connect the identity claim back to a place that was a putative beginning that anchored them. It moved them out from kind of a virtual existence into a very concrete place that one can visit. Uh, I've been to all three of these places, Um, at least the first two. They've been well developed as a national park. you know, with a huge investment of resources to tell a story so that the claim to rights for women, initially it was all about suffrage, the women's right to vote, can be made more real by having that narrative anchored in Seneca Falls and upstate New York. You can go see it. You can go to Selma, get the story of Martin Luther King and what really happened with the various attempted marches and the eventually successful march to Montgomery that redefined uh, African-American race relations in this country. Uh, Stonewall was a bit of an odd uh, uh part to that. It's it's the kicker here to these three, though I'll note that all three truth spots begin with the letter S. So there was an alliterative um, Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall. There were lots of beginnings uh, to the uh, LGBTQ movement, gay rights back in the 60s. There were lots of San Francisco, LA, um, New York, but Stonewall kind of fit the alliterative pattern. And it now has been commemorated as the beginning of the gay rights movement. Um, It is in the process. One of the last things that President Obama did in office was create um, uh, at the site of Stonewall, which still exists as a gay bar in Greenfield Village. uh, Sorry, in in uh, uh, in the village in Greenwich Village in New York, not not Greenfield Village. uh, Forgive me. Um, but uh, President Obama made has designated that as a national park, and soon it too will be encrusted with all of the logos of the National Park Service. It will be legitimated as the point of origin for uh, the gay and lesbian movement. Now, there's an irony and a twist to all of this. Um, I began by suggesting that that you know. Uh, the web is full of claims to truth that need to be checked, ratified, verified, uh, and that sometimes taking the claims back to a place does that ratification. Um, the irony in the case of Stonewall is that this place is is being sanitized. Uh, and in fact, it has been uh, gone through that process of sanitization uh, from the very beginning. It was not a very respectful place. Uh, It was a place where uh, gay men, but also lesbian women would go to meet each other at a time when it was much less easy to do so in New York. Um, uh, And it was a louch kind of place, kind of demi-moaned. And the leaders of the gay movement, who in particular had reason to locate the start of the movement in New York, after the riots uh, at Stonewall that gave rise to the whole story, this was the beginning of the gay and lesbian movement. Uh, people had their head bashed in. The cops arrested all kinds of patrons of the bar. Um, but those who wanted to see New York be the epicenter, the starting point of the gay movement, and in particular Stonewall, had to clean up the story and clean up the place. And they did. And this final step with President Obama making it a national park, um, I think, would have astounded people um, uh, uh, several decades ago who were there that night um, drinking, meeting, um, you know, uh, whatever, um, at a at a really um, raunchy kind of place that somehow now is a national park right up there with Selma and and uh, Seneca Falls. So I find that in that irony um, very interesting as well. 
and then that gets me thinking about accessibility of these true spots and the uh, and the hypermobility that we have in today's uh, day and age, where people can jump in a vehicle and, and drive for hours. Certain people are able to do do such and uh, purchase plane tickets and, and uh, things like that. While <laughs> I, I don't remember anything about that in your book, but it gets me to thinking: Does that you think that that impacts the the true spots as we see them today? Yeah, um, uh, it's actually there's a good example of the book about how that hyper accessibility figures into um, a, another truth spot. This is the chapter on the pilgrimage trail to um, Santiago de uh, Compostela yes. in, in northern Spain. It's known as the Camino or the Way. Lots of people have done this recently. There have been movies. Everybody who does it seems to write a book or make a movie or blog about it, their experiences. And uh, again, the question was the same for me. What was it about this place? It's a it's a it's a trail, literally a path that goes all the way across northern Spain. Takes most people a month or more to walk it, and the, most people do walk it. Excuse me, although some people use a bike, it's it's forbidden to take a bus, although some people cheat along the way. But anyway, these people um, are are walking away with their backpacks. They've got blisters on their feet. It's a torturous experience. They end up at the city of Santiago de Compostela, named after St. James himself, the apostle, supposedly containing bits and pieces of his body in the church, massive pilgrimage church there, and they celebrate their arrival. Almost everybody claims to have learned something about themselves, about the meaning of life, about God, the universe, purpose, you name it. Everybody learns these days something different. But one thing is common. They believe it all the more firmly. Whatever it was that they learned or suspected to be true, now they knew was true. Um, and again, Shirley McLean goes and walks the Camino to Santiago de Compostela, and she comes back saying, yep, I met all of my previous lives, and they really did exist. So for her, it was about reincarnation. But for other people, it's it's about different things. So the question for me is the same one I asked about Delphi or Greenfield Village or any of the other sites, Walden Pond. What was it about this place that made people believe? And one of the things about it is exactly what you, you're saying, that people have the ability to travel great distances these days, relatively easy. Most of the pilgrims, uh, I don't can't say statistically most, a lot of the pilgrims today are coming from North America, uh, Latin America, increasingly from Asia. These are Christians. These are seeking something a believable understanding of the world themselves, the universe. The mere fact that they can get on a plane and fly usually to Barcelona or maybe Bordeaux in France and make their way to the start of the of the way, of the Camino in the Pyrenees along the French-Spanish border in the northeast corner of Spain, the distance they travel, quick now, Back in medieval days when this thing got underway, the pilgrims would have to walk from wherever they lived or take a boat. That took a long time. But then is now the pilgrim, the person who begins the walk, is in a world fundamentally different than home, okay? Completely different from home, and that's part of the ability of the place to convince us. What it, what it means is that you're walking down this path, first of all, for most Americans, they've never walked that much before. These are not these are not kind of professional hikers who have been hiking the Appalachian Trail and so forth. These are ordinary people probably who have never walked that far in their lives, and they do. They see different kinds of buildings than they've seen before. They're confronted with different kinds of foods. They're battling the elements, the weather, as nev never before. What this does is destabilize their understandings. They're literally in a different physical world, a different place that's nothing like home. What it does is begin to call into question in their minds things that they thought 
were given forces them to rethink, destabilizes their understanding. So they become more receptive to whatever it is they're going to take home from this pilgrimage experience. So your question is actually exactly on point, Michael. It is, it is the transit to a very different place that at least for the pilgrimage trail, uh, the way uh, at Santiago de Compostela, that's critically important for making people believe that, my goodness, uh, I, I've seen an entirely different world. I don't have to accept as true what I used to believe is true and come away with a new, in many cases, understanding of themselves, their faith, their philosophy, the purpose, and so forth. So that's a great example. In some ways, I, I think it's adding salience to the truths that uh, have existed uh, for a long period of time and maybe even adding strength. So instead of uh, the opposite, which we often sometimes uh, see as uh, non-truth or, or a future in which truth doesn't exist, maybe there is uh, greater visibility in the truth that uh, we now have access to. Yeah, the the visibility of the truth um, is very apparent to the pilgrims who are, are walking the Camino. Um, one of the things that they see, um, I, I will be the first to admit, I did not walk the Camino. I flew from Barcelona to Santiago de Compostela, and I walked backwards on part of it, and I drove part of it and walked part of it but I didn't walk the whole thing. So for many pilgrims, uh, I should tell you, this disqualifies me as saying much, but I don't rely so much on my own uh, experiences. Uh, what I do in that particular chapter, the data, if you can say my empirical data, is a little different. I rely on, uh, I guess it's eight or so accounts by pilgrims. Shirley McLean is one of them, but seven other people who have done the way uh, and left behind a book length or multiple books uh, about their experiences. I rely on them. And one of the common themes to what the pilgrims have to say is how the, the visible impressions of what they see as they walk the path, it's literally a path, um, had, uh, it, it, it forced them to recognize the difference. And here I'm going to, I don't think I've, apart from Foucault, mentioned the name of any sociologist yet, but I'm going to toss in Durkheim and his distinction between sacred and profane. Um, of course, that, that distinction, Durkheim does a lot, sees that distinction as the heart of all religion. In, in my thinking, what the pilgrimage trail to Santiago de Compostela is a physical manifestation of the distinction between the sacredness of the way and the profanity that is quite literally on either side of the trail. So the, the key for the pilgrim is to stay on the trail. And sometimes that's difficult. Pilgrims get lost. The way is marked with these bright yellow arrows. But if I can give just a story, even in the Middle Ages up to the present, there are awful people who try to take advantage of the pilgrims. And uh, they might try to steal what money they have. They might try to injure them. Uh, they might, in the case of a woman, um, try to uh, impose themselves sexually. So that there are more than a few stories about how an evil-minded person who lives somewhat in Spain, a Spanish person who lives near the way, will change the arrows, literally uh, blot out the correct way, point an arrow in a wrong direction, get the pilgrims to go into a place where they can prey upon um, pilgrims, in particular women, who often walk the way alone for the experience. That's kind of an exaggerated pattern that I saw. If you stay on the straight and narrow path, it's not straight by any means. It's up and down and crooked, but it is narrow. If you stay on that path, you are, for that month you're walking, living in a sacred place, a linear sacred place. You get off that, 
it's profane. You've got people who will take your money, who want to profit from you, who want to abuse you, and so forth. And that juxtaposition of sacred profane, which Durkheim says is at the core of all religions, is put into a material manifestation, if you will, on the Camino pilgrimage trail. It defined sacred. And the people who then know what risks, what what challenges are faced off the path in that zone of profanity that is the rest of the world, uh, if you're on the trail, uh, that becomes an important part of why they get to Santiago, get to that moment of, of culmination at the cathedral. There's a service for the pilgrims. That moment becomes transformative in their own self-understanding or metaphysical understanding. And a real test of their faith, truly. You bet. A real test. <laughs> yes. That was an excellent story, and it was uh, extremely deep to hear the stories of the uh, of the pilgrims who walked that uh, long, treacherous path, uh, from those who who um, left the path to those who who maintained the straight well, and narrow in the path. Yeah, more than more than a few pilgrims. They have a website to people who have died on the Camino. Uh, many from natural causes. They get caught in bad weather. They they die from heat exhaustion or cold. Uh, and of course, there are the, the occasional murders uh, where people are, are kill a pilgrim to take what they can from them. These are all sort of reminders of how special the path and staying on the path uh, really becomes. But if can I go back? Do we have time for a little bit more about another chapter? Yes, we do. Um, in some cases, you've got to go far to a truth spot because the truth spot is unique. There are other pilgrimage trails, but none quite like Santiago de Compostela in Spain. That is the mother of all pilgrimage trails. Um, but there's a different category of truth spot that we haven't really talked about, um, that the location is less important precisely because these truth spots are standardized in their architecture, their design, their purpose-built places that then are built in lots of different locations. So you don't have to go far. In fact, at least in the developed world, if I can use that archaic term, you're going to find these kinds of truth spots around the corner in any town or city of any size, certainly at any university. You're going to find two kinds of truth spots that work very differently than the ones we've been talking about before, in particular, like Walden Pond or the uniqueness of Delphi or the uniqueness of Santiago and the Camino. The two standardized kinds of purpose-built truth spots are laboratories and courthouses. Um, both of them, uh, again, are places that lend credibility to the claims or outcomes or judgments that happen right there. So it's not too far-fetched to me to argue that the architecture of a laboratory, the architecture of a courthouse, and in particular a courtroom, has something to do with the legitimacy of the facts about nature that come out of a lab and the decisions about justice true and false in a legal sense, who did it, who didn't, um, that come out of a courthouse. And um, what's, what's interesting is that these, these places have a, an unbelievable standardization so that it, it's as if the places in their architecture and design were cloned. That's not accidental. Courthouses and labs at least for a specific field, are cloned to precisely because the the credibility of what comes out of those places depends on that cloning, that standardization. So the uh, chapter on courthouses takes up the case of the um, Eagle Tomlinson, Thomas Eagleton Federal Courthouse in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, this was one of dozens of new courthouses. This is for federal level uh, district and appellate courts. So we're talking about the highest level uh, just beneath the Supreme Court itself. And um, 
the the judges um, had gotten along with buildings that sometime dated back to the 19th century. A lot of them were built in the 30s. They just weren't kind of up to date in terms of of technology uh, and security. The judges said we got to have new buildings. Um, several billion dollars billion dollars was spent nationally building these new courthouses. Um, and what was remarkable to me was, though the architects did their best to make them distinctive, to kind of, that's what architects do. They don't get a lot of credit for designing a building that looks exactly like somebody else's building. No matter how much they tried to do that, it's as if these architects in designing courthouses followed a template. And I'm thinking, why do they all have columns and domes why do they all have so many elevators and so many different hallways, different passages leading to the courtroom for different players in the legal um, drama to get to that courtroom? And I found my playbook. It was unbelievable. I didn't know such a thing existed. Um, I talked to the architect of this Eagleton Courthouse in St. Louis, and he said, oh, sure. The judges wrote up this big book called The Guidelines. And what the guidelines said is basically, it, it's a long document. It doesn't make for easy reading, but I loved it. It basically said, if you want a courthouse to function properly as a site of rendering justice, that is truth and nothing but, okay, you got to make it look like this. It didn't say you got to make it brick or glass. It did say there has to be enough glass so that it gives the appearance of transparency, nothing secret or hiding. It's an open process. And all of those passageways, um, lots of different elevators for judges, for the defendant, for the jury, for the public, for the, for the lawyers, they all have separate ways to get to the kind of culmination point, which in this case is the courtroom, of course. Um, why? Well, you don't want to have the jury meet the defendant or a witness or the judge before that moment of culmination. You got to get them to the to that room where that's the only place all of the players are together, right there. And uh, this architect I was talking to said, you know, the thing about courthouses is it's got more hallways and elevators than any other office building you've ever been in, and it's true of all of them because there has to be a careful segregation of each of the different parties to the, jur the juridical process. They can't meet until that one moment that culminates in the courtroom itself. They got to get there. So, uh, and I found this to be true for all of them. They're standardized and it really um, is an important part of how these courthouse functions uh, as truth spots. Those pillars, uh, is, that, is that a symbol of power, authority? What's the, what's the, what do they symbolize? All of it. But you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm certainly, as a sociologist, um, sensitive to how it is that power is built into the courtroom now. If we just look at that room where everybody converges for a trial, uh, who sits highest? Well, of course, the judge. The judge is about two or three steps above everybody else. The jury is on one side. Uh, the plaintiff and defendants each have their place. There's a gallery in the back for spectators and the media. Uh, that's almost been the same since the beginning of the Republic. Court Courtrooms have not changed that much, except in terms of cameras and computers and that kind of stuff, for sure. Um, but I wasn't willing to say that the reason why the judge is two steps above everybody else is because of his or her power. I'm more willing to use, in a Weberian sense now, authority. The person is up there, remember, justice is blind, in order to have a literal, this is ironic, vision over all that goes on. Things cannot be hidden from the vision of the judge. There is a functional explanation for the two steps higher that every judge sits in. It's to give a vantage point that is unique only the judge can see everything going on as well as the judge. That's important for order in court. So I don't think it, uh, though for sure, 
courthouses and courtrooms are centers of power. Can't deny that. Um, but even so simple a thing as the judge being elevated is not simply a matter of power, but also authority and functionality in preserving this spot as a case where at the end of the day, you might not get the verdict, but most people argue that the verdict is legitimate. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the system of laws and trials that we have these days. It's a great place to uh, a great place to finish. We're running out of time, unfortunately. We could talk about this all day if I uh, <laughs> if I had the time and if we had the the space to do so. Uh, Michael, um, but the book is short. You should remind readers that yes. it's it's only about 150 print pages, so they can read it on a long plane ride. Yes, and uh, it's it's a good enough book to read it twice. <laughs> once on the way there, and once on the way back. Too. Oh, thank you. Yes. So we're all out of time, but one last question. What are you working on, on now, Dr. Garen? Uh, well, I got to tell you, Michael, uh, I, I recently retired from Indiana University um, and uh, left my office behind, and many of my books went to graduate students and, and libraries around the world. Um, but I've, I've taken an old interest. It follows up on places. I've gotten obsessed with um, architects architects now uh, working between the late 19th century and the early 21st century, the long 20th century, and in particular, how those architects tried to build the modern world. What assumptions about modernity, what assumptions about society, about people, about culture, did they think they could achieve by making buildings, literally designing and and um, uh, getting built certain kinds of buildings with a certain architectural style and function. Um, part of this interest was reinforced by the fact that this year, 2019, is the um, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Bauhaus, the great school in, in Germany that gave rise to the international style of architecture, white or black boxes all over the world. Um, that was the school that started it. So that's what I'm working on. I look forward to the completion of it, and uh, hopefully it can turn into uh, a book that I can then read and have you back on the show for. <laughs> look forward to that. Well, this has been an episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And again, I'm Dr. Johnston, the host of this channel. Uh, have a great day. 